Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with each other, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dare to ask him to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. In Mark chapter twelve, we're in the end of the book of Mark. In Mark chapter twelve, Jesus, as we picked it up, is teaching in the temple area in Jerusalem, and the authorities, the religious leaders, want to eliminate him. They're ready to get rid of him. Why? Why? Because they, these religious leaders see Jesus and his movement as a threat, as a threat to their existence, to their way of life, to everything that matters to them. Now, that's hard for us. If you just take the average person in the West, the average person in America and Europe, they would not see Jesus as a threat. They would instead say he's a good man, religious leader, nice guy. Why is he a threat? 
And part of the problem is that we have grown up, many of us, especially in the West, under institutionalized religion. The church has taken over in many parts of the West so that you have you know, a, a whole Roman Catholic entity through Central and South America, Anglicanism in the UK, the Baptist Church in Alabama, Mississippi, and everywhere else across the South. And what ends up happening is you have institutionalized religion and the culture of the community being melded. And it ends up changing Christianity. You begin to assume that the culture of the Americas, the culture of the South, the culture of England is Christianity. And it's sort of a soft, mellow thing that doesn't offend you because it's the culture that you've grown up in. But I think we're missing the point of what Jesus is about. It's much like this. Supposedly, my dog is, is domesticated from a wolf. There's a vast difference between the wolf and my dog. My dog, and even in this point, I might say my wife's dog, has the jaw strength of a canary, the fierce growl of like a Nespresso machine. If you left him out overnight in the woods, you'd be doing a funeral for him in the morning. They look like they could be related but it is a completely domesticated thing so that it no longer resembles what it originally was. Don't worry, he's not that smart. He won't know that I'm making fun of him. (laughs) I think the problem is in the West, we've domesticated Jesus. We have taken the wolf and made him a house pet. Jesus was not merely some kind of religious guru walking around giving poetry readings. He was a revolutionary, and the people of his day knew it. And we, we miss out on this sometimes because Jesus talked about something that, that we gloss over. Jesus talked about the kingdom. At the very beginning of Mark 1, the very first sermon that he preaches in Mark 1.15, he says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Modern readers, modern Western readers, those of us who are past the Enlightenment, We hear that word kingdom and we spiritualize it. The kingdom of God is about my salvation. The kingdom of God is about me. The kingdom of God is about my faith and how I'm doing as a person. We internalize anything related to religion and faith. If Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about me and my devotional life, me and my involvement in church, me and whether I'm avoiding vices, whether I'm a nice guy. And the modern Western world is okay with that sort of understanding. As long as it makes you happy, if you're becoming a better person, that's great. You go all for that kingdom of God. But in the ancient world, the world in which Jesus lived, the world in which Jesus was walking and talking and speaking, they did not understand religion and faith as an internal and personal thing. It was not just about your private life. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God, I've come to bring the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand, it does have to do with your inner life. 
with your relationship to God, with your salvation, but it has to do with your whole life, your work and your money and your relationships, and it has implications for the culture in which you live. The priorities and laws and politics of a society will be affected by that kingdom. Jesus knew this, and it's why the first sermon that's recorded in the book of Luke He cites from Isaiah 61. It says, I've come to bring good news to the poor, sight to the blind, to set the captives and the oppressed free, to bring the year of the Lord's favor, the canceling of debts, getting people out of slavery and prison. I've come to heal. I've come to overturn the social structures. That was insurrectionist language. When he talked about the kingdom of God, he wasn't just talking about making you happy inside. And we know this because he walked around constantly upsetting the cultural and status norms of his day. He rebukes the rabbis, who were the good people, and yet he welcomes in tax collectors and prostitutes who nobody wanted to have anything to do with. He touches the unclean to heal them, which good religious people didn't do. He calls Samaritans his neighbor. They were your enemy. And he claims to be the Christ. And he doesn't just mean about your heart. Jesus challenges the values and priorities of every kingdom. Your personal kingdom and every political kingdom. And he said, I'm turning everything upside down. I have come in Mark 10.45, I've come not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life a ransom for many. I've come to undo the unjust social structures of this world, and I've come to overturn the priorities you place on yourself. Even I, the King, the Lord, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life that you might have life. Jesus challenges every value that we tend to hold by nature and every priority of every kingdom that has ever existed. And this is why Jesus was seen as such a threat in that ancient world. The authorities back then knew that he was a threat. And he should probably be seen as such still today. So, in their fear they conspired to destroy him. It's amazing, actually, a a verse that we gloss over, verse 13, the first challenge that comes to Jesus. They're kind of getting together. It says they, 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 and it's all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They're getting together saying, okay, who's going to attack first? And the first people to go are the Pharisees and the Herodians. They go to trap Jesus in his talk. Now, the thing to know about the Pharisees and the Herodians is they never did anything together. They did not like each other. They were at opposite ends of the political spectrum, of the religious spectrum. In fact, if you look at the ancient Jewish world, the first century world, and all the different types of religious categories, political categories that were out there, you had a bunch of different people that are mentioned in the Bible, one of which the Essenes are not. The Herodians were collaborators in the sense that they were the high-class, kind of kingly people that that um, Rome had put in place to control the Jews. They were secular, and they loved their power, and they had all the money, and they had all the status, but they didn't really care much for Jewish fastidiousness. 
Slightly over was the Sadducees, scribes, and Pharisees, of which was made up the ruling party of Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees, which we'll talk about in a little bit, were priests. They, worship, they celebrated in the temple. And they were also religious conservatives. They didn't believe in the spiritual life. They didn't believe in eternity. They only read the first five books of the Old Testament. In the middle were the scribes, who were the, the lawyers, the theologians, the ones who made the best arguments. And then there was the, the more progressive politically, but also kind of holding fast theologically Pharisees, rabbis, in the synagogues all over the country. They were the ones that Jesus mostly argues with throughout his ministry in Galilee. And then you have the extremist extremists, the zealots who were trying to overthrow Rome and the Herodians and pretty much anybody else. They went for murder and they went to overthrow the actual Roman government. And then there were the Essenes, who most of you don't know much about, but they hid in the mountains because they wanted nothing to do with the political realm or the culture of the day. They just thought they would wait it out, keep themselves pure and avoid contamination. When Jesus comes along, he doesn't say, I'm with the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, or I'm against the Herodians, I'm for the Essenes. Instead, he challenges every single power that exists, every single party, its priorities and its agendas. He pushes on them because he's bringing in God's kingdom, not man's. The Pharisees and the Herodians set to trap him and, in, and then they say, is it lawful, Jesus, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? In this same story, when it's told in the book of Luke, it says, should we give the tribute tax to Caesar or not? What's being referenced here is not taxes in general. Most of the taxes in that day happened to do with trade, when you walked into a city or left or on commerce. But there was one tax that was particularly odious to the Jewish people. It was the poll tax or the tribute tax. It was what the Romans put on every subjugated people in the Roman Empire. And it basically amounted to one denarius, one day's wage, on every adult. Basically, for the right to exist under Caesar and Rome, you must pay. Your head belongs to us. One day of your life belongs to us. The poll tax was incredibly upsetting to the Jewish people because they did not believe they should be subjugated to anybody. And in fact, in AD 6, a guy named Judas the Galilean, according to the historian Josephus, led a revolt. AD 6 was about the time when the census happened where Joseph and Mary had to go to be taxed to, be, to get their, you know, their census done so they could be taxed. This is when it started. Jo Judas the Galilean says, this is not okay. We're not going to pay this tax to Caesar. So he's up in Galilee, gathers a band of followers, storms Jerusalem. He drives out the Gentiles around the temple and declares that it is cleansed. He fights the Romans and says, I'm establishing, we're establishing a new kingdom for Yahweh in the house of God. And then the Romans came in and captured him and executed him. But what started was the zealot party. 
about 30 years later, a guy named Jesus, a Nazarene, also from Galilee, gathers a group of disciples, talks about the kingdom of God is at hand. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, reenacting the coronation ceremony of Solomon. He goes into the temple, overturns the money changers, cleansing it like Judas the Galilean did 30 years earlier. And the religious and political leaders know what he's up to. So they want to put him on the spot, in front of all the people, in front of the Roman guards who are there. Should we pay the tax to Caesar, yes or no? Basically, what kind of insurrection are you leading? Are you a king or not? They're calling his bluff here. It's a trap. If Jesus says, do not pay the tax, like Judas the Galilean did, the Romans would hear about it, that he's coming to lead a revolt, and they would arrest him and execute him. If instead he says, yes, pay your taxes, all the people hearing would have seen that he was a fraud, claimed to be leading an insurrection, bringing the kingdom, but all the people would recognize that he was just afraid. What does Jesus do? He neither says, don't pay nor pay. He turns it upside down, right? It's brilliant. Show me a denarius, he says, which is the cost of the poll tax. Whose likeness and inscription is on it? Show me a denarius. He didn't actually have one. He's too poor. And a faithful Jew didn't really like to carry around coins with the image of a Caesar on it. But his opponents happened to have one. Show me a denarius. I don't have one. Whose likeness is on it? That word likeness is the same Greek concept as image or icon. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. You see this in an actual coin. This is a denarius, an actual coin with Caesar on it. And what's the inscription on it? The inscription is Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti Filius Augustus, Pontifex Pontifex Maximus. Basically, here's what it says. Tiberius was the name of the guy. Caesar means king. It's saying, this is Tiberius, the king the son of the divine, and on the back side it says, high priest. You know what? Why don't you render to Caesar what belongs to him? Jesus changes the word here, actually. They say, should we give the tax? And Jesus says, you should give back the tax. Or rather, it's slightly more like this. Should we give the tax, pay the tax? And Jesus says, yes and no. Here's what you should do. Pay back to Caesar what Caesar deserves. On one level, he's saying, look, whose image is this? Who printed these coins? It's Caesar, right? What difference is the money to you? It's his. Give it back to him. Don't be so hung up on something that belongs to him. And yet implied underneath of it is pay back to Caesar 
what Caesar deserves. So what does a Caesar, a tyrant, deserve? He certainly does not deserve your total allegiance. Jesus makes this explicitly clear in the very next sentence when he says, not just render to Caesar what belongs to him, but give to God, render to God the things that are God's. Only God deserves your full and total allegiance. No king or any other kingdom deserves that. This was, as one preacher put it, the first time that limits were put on the authority of any regime. The ancient world believed that kings had divine authority. Even the Jewish people believed that the authorities had divine authority. You couldn't question a Caesar or a governor or a king. They were God's chosen. They were either God's or they were God's chosen. Therefore, you owed them total allegiance. Jesus comes along and says, give to the Caesars what belongs to them, but your allegiance belongs to one. Your total allegiance only belongs to God. And yet in the middle of this, he's pushing on all the political parties that exist there. Basically, he's saying, look, it's not the way of the Herodians where you give up your view of God in order to get everything you can from the government, aligning yourself with a political party. Nor is it the the way of the zealots, murder people at every cause that you can. Or the way of the Essenes, avoid, just step out of all the political realm and the culture of your day. If you were going to draw anything from what Jesus is saying, it is engage the political world that you live in. But do so with an allegiance to God first. It should be very difficult for any political party to court a Christian. Because the gospel and the kingdom that Jesus brings pushes on the details of our life and our life together. And our allegiance is to Christ and to what he calls us to in this world. Not to the wholesale agenda of any one political party. Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to him, but render to God the things that are God's. And the implication there is for us to ask, on what is God's image imprinted? Whose image is on the coin? Give it back to him. But on what or on whom is God imprinted? Right? In Genesis 1.27, In the creation, we read, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You and I bear the icon of God. We are made in God's image. So when Jesus says, give to God what belongs to God, we should be asking, so what belongs to God? What does he deserve? What do we owe God? We give to him our priorities, our goals in life, 
We give to him our giftings, our talents, our time, our money, our relationships, our body, our mind, our whole life, and yes, even our politics. Everything that we are is God's. So give it to him. And the people were amazed. So they sent the next round to attack Jesus. This time the Sadducees come. Sadducees do not believe in eternal life. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so they give him one of their great sort of rabbinic challenges. They don't believe in the resurrection, but they want to catch Jesus in in his ignorance. He's just a country rube. He's never been educated like we are. We're the people of status. We're the Sadducees. We're the priests in the temple. We know this religion stuff, and we're way smarter than this guy. So they say, starting in verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died and leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, as you guys claim, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus answers them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What does that mean? In heaven, you'll neither be given in marriage like the angels. That's I'm not going to actually tell you. But if you want to talk about that a little later, come and see me afterwards. I'll give you some explanations on it, but I'm not going to dig into that. Instead, I want to go back to the starting point of Jesus' phrase there. He says to them, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These are the priests who operate in the temple. They offer sacrifices. They, and their whole life, because you, to be a priest, you had to be born a priest. Their whole life from childhood was working around the temple. They were trained religious leaders. This was their job. They wore priestly collars, if you would. Jesus is saying, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. As one scholar put it, this would be like telling a Wall Street partner, you know nothing of the financial markets. You are an idiot. Jesus is being incredibly offensive and challenging them on their expertise, what they have their master's and PhD in. But he's saying, in saying you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, that you are subjecting God's purposes to your assumptions and biases. You are submitting God's word beneath your own agenda and desires. Not that we ever do the same thing. And they're doing it by bringing up one of these kind of philosophical conundrums. And I've had conversations with people who don't believe in God. And here's what I would say is, look, there are very legitimate questions about faith. It's not all easy. It's not all a nicely wrapped package. 
But when questions come at me nowadays, I've found like somebody says like, how could a good God allow suffering? Or how can you say that Jesus is the only way? Or can you prove God exists? Because I, I don't see him. I've come to realize a couple things. One is sometimes that's a smokescreen to some real deeper issues. And there's a little bit of of an arrogance when we bring up some of these questions, as if it's not possible that God, the all-knowing, all-powerful God, could have a reason that I can't conceive of. And if I can't conceive of it, he must not exist. It must not exist. But what Jesus is saying here to the Sadducees, and he would say to all of us, is do not limit the God of the universe to what you can prove or what you can conceive of. Jesus is telling them, look, I know you have religious pedigree. You've practiced this religious thing your whole life. You've shown up at church every week since you were a kid. You have tons of theological knowledge. But you must know God. You need to experience God. You need to love God. You do not know God. A scribe is the last one to come up to Jesus. It's, this guy's a little more earnest. He's seen how Jesus has answered, and he's been impressed. What's the great commandment? Jesus says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe then kind of responding to what Jesus said is, I, I agree with you. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is much more than all the offerings and sacrifices. The two of them are having a conversation about what it is to know and love God and live out of that. And the two of them together declare this, religious participation is fine. In fact, it's a good thing, right? But has your love for God changed you? Has your love for God changed you? You know, Jesus' band of followers included the 12, right? Do you know who was in the 12? The 12 included people who, prior to Jesus, would have been at each other's throats. They were at opposite ends of many of the spectrums. John is believed to have been of the priestly class and had ties to Jerusalem. Along with John are peasants from rural areas. They were at opposite ends of the social spectrum. Then inside of Jesus, 12 included Simon the Zealot and Matthew, a tax collector. One of them murders collaborators. The other one is a collaborator. And along with that, it also included Mary Magdalene, who by all accounts was a prostitute and demon-possessed. You have the most unclean, you have the collaborator, and you have the murdering rebel. And all of them are changed. Their love of God through the relationship with Jesus transforms them. The zealotry, the tax collector, the prostitute are changed. Jesus is saying, your social and moral and political stances should be changed over the course of time. Your view of yourself should be changed Your treatment of others should be changed. If you've been following Christ for a long time 
and people see no difference in you. Maybe you're religious, but maybe you don't know God's word or the power of God in your life. Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He is near the kingdom of God because he is earnestly seeking God. And Jesus is saying, you draw near to God not by perfect theology or religious practice. You draw near to the kingdom of God by drawing near to Jesus. If you want to draw near to God, if you come in here today as sort of a, you're not sure, it's uncertain about this, don't just go down the philosophical route first. Go down the relationship route first. Experience Jesus. Read about him. Say, if you do exist, show me. Draw near to what God has done to you, for you, in Jesus. When you accept this Jesus, his claims and his upside-down kingdom, you will lose something. You will lose your autonomy. Your goals and priorities and politics and economics will be affected. If you make Jesus your Lord, everything will be changed in you. You may even lose what you think is most important right now. But you will gain what you most need. Not your own kingdom, but the king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have so often in our religious practice domesticated you. We have taken the roaring lion and made him into a house cat so that we do not have to be upset. May the truth of your gospel, of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, push us down to our knees but then raise us up to the life that we are called to, life in the kingdom, life in the resurrection. In your name we pray, amen.